Good morning. This is Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Kaveh Movahead. The voters have spoken. By more than a two-to-one margin, New Mexicans have approved amending our state constitution to increase the annual withdrawal from the land-grant permanent fund to boost funding for early childhood education and K-12 public education. For now, projections say that will mean from 200 to 250 million new dollars that could be injected into our early and public education systems. Though the measure passed on uh, on election day, it's not so clear what the next steps are and if the effects will materialize as we expected. Today on Let's Talk New Mexico, we'll talk to the state's early education secretary, policy advocates, the chair of New Mexico's Senate Education Committee, and we'll hear from a think tank that weighed in on public education reforms. We want to hear from you, too. Is it smart to withdraw from our long-term investment account to invest in our kids today? What about the quality of education in the state? Does ranking 50th keep families from moving here or make them move away? How could this money change that equation? And do you trust that the money will be spent wisely? Share your ideas about the boost to education funding promised by Amendment 1 by emailing letstalk at KUNM.org or call in live at 505-277-5866. Let's start the show with our first guest of the morning. On the phone with us is New Mexico's Secretary of Early Childhood Education and Care, Elizabeth Groginski. Thank you for joining us this morning, Secretary Groginski. Thank you, Kaveh. Great to be here with you. Amendment 1 is intended to interject a very large amount of money into public education and early childhood education. I've seen some estimates that they vary quite a bit. Um, What kind of numbers are you expecting? We've seen anywhere from 125 million to upwards of 150 million annually coming uh, to support early childhood education and care, uh, which is much needed. The revenues that we need to fully fund the prenatal to five system here in New Mexico are great, and the passage of the land grant permanent fund will be a good step in that direction to support that full funding. What was that term you just used? The pre- did you say the prenatal divide? Did I get that right? Uh, prenatal to five. To five, okay, gotcha. Yes, exactly. Thank you for clarifying that. Okay. Uh, There are plenty of critics, and among their arguments is that early childhood education has just recently been given a lot of money. Why not wait to see how that's used before allocating more? You know, Kaveh, I've, I've heard that as well, and I think it's important that people understand the critical and rapid period of development of a child's life in these first five years. Um, the 80% of the brain is developed in these years. Everywhere a child is, they're learning, and so the quality of those environments, the support that a family has to reduce their stress and allow them to focus on the supports for their child are just essential to turning around so many of the challenges we have here in New Mexico, whether it's special education, whether it's um, juvenile justice issues, child abuse and neglect, supporting families in these early years and making sure their child has access to quality early childhood opportunities is going to be the game changer for New Mexico. Uh, And so we have laid out a four-year finance plan that the legislature mandated we do, and we did it. So it's very transparent in terms of the need, the number of children and families we need, we want to and need to reach, uh, and the cost of those care of, the, of those services. Okay, I'd like to ask you about that because one of the other big criticisms is that there's no plan for spending all the money, uh, that it's blindly throwing money at a problem. But as you said, you just have a four-year plan kind of put together. What can you share with us? 
Yes. Uh, we released it um, just about a year ago. And again, it was mandated as part of the act that created our department. Wisely, the legislature said, we don't want to just create a department and not know what the cost will be to fully fund, again, the prenatal divide system, uh, which is very comprehensive. And so that plan outlines home visiting and what that will take to reach what we call scale so that all families who want and need those services have access, no matter if they're in rural New Mexico or urban uh, or in our tribal communities. Uh, We talk about early intervention for infants and toddlers with developmental delays and disabilities who need access to services. Child care, of course, is a very important um, program for families, for businesses, for children, and pre-K. So it lays out those four programs very clearly, what it'll take, how many children will serve, uh, and what we'll need to pay the individuals that are delivering those services. Okay, well, this sounds pretty good, but New Mexico is not ready to just run with it and start the spending spree, right? What are some of the next steps? I think we have to continue to focus on what are the needs of families and young children, work with the legislature to help um, you know, understand what their priorities are. But ultimately, you know, we see across our state, there's communities where people cannot attract a workforce. Our schools are setting up childcare centers because they can't attract teachers. That is the work of this department, and that is the importance of early care and education services. So it is a imperative that we work quickly to stand up and establish child care all over the state. Uh, the governor asked me and general services and the state personnel office to do the same for state government employees, and we did that. We created two uh, child care centers. But we are hearing this from mayors, from cities, um, you know, uh, leadership all over the state the dire need for resources and support in attracting a workforce, a high-quality workforce, and also building childcare facilities that will support families and businesses. Okay, I'd like to add another voice to the conversation now here in the studio. We have Bill Jordan, the Government Relations Officer with New Mexico Voices for Children. That's a nonpartisan advocacy group that works for kids and families. Thanks for coming in today, Bill. Good to be here, Kave. Thank you. Uh, Bill, I've introduced you now because you've been involved in the conversation of how to fund early childhood education for more than a decade, right? What were those earlier discussions like? Uh, they were tough. You know, um, if, if I can go back actually a couple of decades, um, in 2001, advocates finally were able to uh, get eligibility for child care up to 200% of poverty. That same year, a recession hit, and child care eligibility was cut in half. It took seven or eight years to get it back. In 2008, we restored eligibility for child care. A few months later, a recession hit. It took us years to get it back. By 2010, we were so frustrated uh, by the lack of support for early ed in the state's budget that we decided to look for other sources of dedicated funding. And at New Mexico Voices for Children, this idea was uh, born that we could uh, perhaps use the land-grant permanent fund, for, which was dedicated for education, because now we have a broader understanding that learning begins before kindergarten and that... Uh, we really need to focus more on those early years. 
And so we wanted to broaden the definition and the use of the land-grant permanent fund. And so for a dozen years, uh, we've been working on this effort, and I'm just thrilled that the voters overwhelmingly said yes to this. Now, you just said the R word, recession, a couple times when going over the history of kind of the efforts here. And, you know, unfortunately, I think we've all been talking about a possible upcoming recession or being in a recession right now. Uh, Are we worried about it this time around? Well, we're, we're certainly worried about the general fund, and there's no doubt that the state needs to diversify its revenues away from gas and oil so that we're not on this roller coaster of up-and-down revenues. But I think one of the beauties of the land-grant permanent fund is it's invested fairly conservatively, and it doesn't bounce up and down as much. It's also... The withdrawal, the money that comes from the permanent fund, is based on a five-year average. So it doesn't uh, impact the uh, revenues coming out of the fund quite so much when there's a downturn for only a couple of years. Okay, and I guess just to be clear, Amendment 1 will alter the state constitution in a way that's going to require the approval of the U.S. Congress. Uh, I wonder what's happening to ensure that that's going to be successful. That is in process right now. In fact, we're kind of hoping that it'll happen in this lame duck session. But both the House and the Senate, our congressional delegation, are uh, working to get that uh, approval in uh, the next couple of months. Okay. Um, I'm going to go back to Secretary Graginsky. I wonder, do you see the potential for legislative roadblocks to carrying out the people's will, either in Washington or in the Roundhouse? You know, I know that the bill that Senator Heinrich and Representative Stansberry have have co-sponsored and the Senate made it through its first committee unanimous uh, with bipartisan support. Um, So I don't I don't think that we'll see that in Congress. And I I don't think we'd see it here in the legislature. But I, I think having good discussions about what it is that New Mexico families and young children need uh, and deserve to have in order to get a good start in life. I think we see um, so many of the outcomes um, that we, when we invest early, uh, we can avoid some of the other challenges down the road with, uh, within K-12. And so I think it's great that the land-grant permanent fund increases are also looking at our K-12 education system and how these two, um, the early childhood and the K-12 system, can work better together and make sure that we're preparing young children for success. Okay, Bill, I want to go back to you with a question. Uh, The voters overwhelmingly passed Amendment 1 uh, to increase school and early childhood funding. What kinds of things in early childhood ed can we use that money for? Well, certainly uh, we're looking at home visiting programs, uh, high-quality child care, three- and four-year-old pre-K, early intervention programs, and uh, perhaps uh, professional development. So, There's a wide array, and and the secretary may have more to say on this, but there's a wide array of prenatal to kindergarten programs that uh, we're focused on. Okay. Secretary, would you like to add anything? 
Well, I think, again, this will be determined by the legislature. That is their role is to appropriate the funds in the areas they see um, most important. Um, I do agree with Bill in terms of, for sure, pre-K, early care and education, high quality. And I think about special education, you know, preschool special education. And what would that look like in our state? We fully fund that. We make sure that we have strong special education uh, teachers in our classrooms, um, both in the school-based programs as well as in our community-based programs making sure children are getting the supports and services they need. So I think there are a lot of um, opportunities for the legislature to take a look and see how could this new stable and predictable revenue stream be used to strengthen our early um, early care and education. All right, Secretary Kurganske, I wonder if there are elements of your four-year plan that you anticipate having to maybe sell legislators on a bit and you know, maybe there are elements that are not purely education, but are adjacent and just as important. I'm thinking of, you know, home visiting for new parents. Uh, ECECD does child care, too, as opposed to early education. Can Amendment 1 funds be used for those kinds of things? That's you kind know, of a I'd, three-part I'd, question, I guess. I apologize. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so first, uh, just to be clear, you know, early care and education does include um, Head Start, child care, and pre-K. Uh, within our national early childhood policy, we think of all three of those. Again, to Bill's point, we want to make sure that child care is high quality, that those educators are well compensated and well credentialed. And so that becomes another part of our system building effort. Uh, so um I believe I'm trying to remember all three questions. Home visiting, I think, is sometimes misunderstood because it is truly an educational program. The parent is the educator who delivers the curriculum. And the home visitor also helps connect the family with other important resources like child care, potentially like pre-K. So it is all part of the ecosystem we call of early childhood. And it's important that we recognize home visiting as an early care and education program. Okay, uh, this is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Kaveh Movahead. We're taking your calls about Amendment 1, which passed and should boost education and early childhood funding. Call us at 505-277-5866. We're going to pause for just a moment. We'll be right back. The fall fundraiser is coming right up on September 10th, and we're offering a really nice early bird prize this year. Two-Wheel Drive has generously donated a Bianchi Torino bike, a comfortable city bike that features a lightweight alloy frame. Donate by September 8th and be automatically entered into the early bird prize drawing. We're only offering one prize this fall, so don't wait. Visit KUNM.org and donate today. It's been a breakthrough year for 23-year-old Canadian pianist Jaden Isaac Zerko. This year, he's won five gold medals at five international piano competitions. We'll hear his gold medal performance in Hilton Head, South Carolina, on the next Performance Today from APM. Weekday mornings at 9 on KUNM. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Kaveh Movahead. We're talking to Secretary Elizabeth Garginski from the Early Childhood Education and Care Department, ECECD, and Bill Jordan from New Mexico Voices for Children. Do you think it's too soon to invest more money into early childhood education after putting so much new money into the system in the last few years? 
Tell us why or why not by calling 505-277-5866 or email us, let's talk at KUNM.org. You can also tweet to us using the hashtag Let's Talk NM. I'd like to introduce a third guest this hour on the phone from Albuquerque. We have Elaine Sanchez, the executive director of Native American Professional Parent Resources. She's with us on the phone. They like to go by Napier. Is that right, Elaine? Napper. Very close. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Can you tell us about some of the early childhood education and care programs Napper runs? Absolutely. We're a very diverse organization, and we work with uh, the early childhood sector by having home visiting, tribal home visiting, early intervention services, early Head Start programs, which are both in-center as well as uh, at home. And we also have a dental support center, which works with the the, uh, kiddos in these programs as well. Okay, and you're operating not just in Albuquerque where you are, but kind of all over the state and beyond? Absolutely. We have, our programs have different reaches depending on which program we're talking about. Our largest uh, reach is all of New Mexico, Southern Colorado, and El Paso, Texas as well. Now, the first part of your organization's name is Native American. How is that related to the mission that that you have? Um, Well, absolutely. That's how we started. We've been uh, in in service for 40 years uh, this year, and it started as solely Native American serving. Uh, through that time and through the needs that we've seen through the state of New Mexico, we've recognized the need to expand. And some of the programs uh, on the federal level are required to have both Native and non-Native uh, children represented in our program. So we have diversified. Okay. I'd like to know a little more about some of the interventions y'all run. What uh, do some of them look like? What kinds of impacts have you seen? Absolutely. So um, it would be based around really providing the families with the supports and the strengths that they need to increase their parenting skills that they have. So we will go in and have, you know, just basic conversations about how are things working for you? What are things that can be improved? Then we have actually structured curriculums that we work with the families on to really empower them to make their own decisions to strengthen their household, their families for the long term. So some of the interventions we work with are actually preventive measures. Uh, For example, from the dental side of things, we do intervention services where we evaluate hearing, we evaluate sight, we evaluate, uh, I mean, you name it, we go in there and we do the evaluations. Then our primary role from there is supporting the families to find the resources, find the advocates that they need in their local communities or elsewhere to assure that their families are giving their children the foundation in those years zero to five that will expand to the rest of their lives. Because as Secretary Gurgensky stated, we know that this is the base for successful life is zero to five. Okay, Secretary Gurgensky, when we kind of hear those descriptions of the work uh, Elaine and Napper do, um, are those the kinds of interventions that we should think of when we think of early childhood care? 
Absolutely. And uh, NAPA is a great partner with, with the department. Um, and I, I think it's, you know, to, to Elaine's last point here, we have to really get our head around the fact that, you know, this is a critical and rapid period of development. And when families are struggling and families don't have access to good supportive services like what Elaine described or access to a child care program or a pre-K program, that creates a lot of stress in a family. And then that stress spills over into their parenting and into other things that we know happen, like child abuse and neglect, like um, children not being ready when they enter kindergarten or even preschool. So I think that we have an opportunity here in New Mexico, like no other. Uh, we have overseen the largest expansion of child care thanks to federal relief dollars. And again, it's been the goal of Governor Lujan Grisham since day one to create a universal um, high-quality, affordable early care and education system. So this is no surprise, and we need to put our money uh, where our mouth is and get this done for the families and children of New Mexico because we are going to see the return on investment. The research is definitive. You invest in the early years and you invest in quality, you are going to see the returns, better outcomes later in life, better health outcomes, better educational outcomes, so it's just time for us to be able to make this commitment, work together with the legislature, figure out what the priorities are, and use these funds, stable and predictable funding sources, this and the trust fund, to build the system, the world-class prenatal device system that families in New Mexico want and deserve. Okay, you just made a real good case for why this is just imperative, I guess I would say. Um you have a real big check coming in the mail sometime soon. I wonder if there's any talk of maybe making home visiting universal. We absolutely are working on that. We have a, a program we're working on with Department of Health, Family Connects, every birthing hospital in New Mexico. Uh, we hope over the next three to five years we'll have every family will have an opportunity for three to four visits. And then if needed, connect them with a longer term home visiting program. We're expanding models that support families with substance use, uh, mental health issues, families who are involved with the child welfare system. These are all important steps that the legislature has supported and give a lot of credit to the legislative, uh, to the legislature for being strong investors in early childhood and to the governor, I think, for her leadership around making sure families in New Mexico get the best start in life uh, when they start, you know, they have very little access when a family gets going. And so how can we as a state invest in that family and make sure we can provide the supports and the services, the early care and education uh, that their children need. Okay, I'd like to go back to Elaine. Um, I get the idea that the services you're providing generally are for at-risk parents. Correct me if I'm wrong with that. And so then that makes me wonder if there's kind of a stigma attached to receiving those kinds of services, home visiting and such. You know, there very well could be initially, but I think what we've experienced is that once a family starts to experience what we provide, the services we provide, they feel that it's invaluable. They're like, how did I even think I could make it anywhere without these services? So that is quite quickly uh, dissipated, and I would say go away. And what I would say is that people who aren't familiar uh, with what we're doing in the early uh, childhood realm could really benefit from these dollars in an educational standpoint for them too, because they need to know what we're going to do, how we're going to help families, and that this really works. So I think this is a, a multifaceted benefit to the state 
and how we can support these families. Okay, I'd like to go back to Secretary Gurgensky because, you know, I know we know that there aren't enough service providers to meet all the demand, and we're going to have to build out capacity if we're going to expand programs. But we also just got a question from a caller, Andy in Albuquerque, who couldn't stay on the line. I think it's related. Uh, Andy says, when Intel went to Rio Rancho, they offered training courses. Will there be two- or three-year training courses for early childhood teachers, uh, or are they going to go in blind? So what sort of training programs do you have in mind to go along with that expansion? Mm -hmm. Great question, Andy, and thank you for that. Um, Across our programs, we have what we call um, uh, um, educational programs. So for child care, they um, can start within their first six months. They need to get a 45-hour certificate. It includes courses in child development and some other basic child um, development courses. They can move quickly on to getting a child development certificate, an AA in infant studies or early childhood or a BA. We support all of that with mentoring. Now with Opportunity Scholarship, we have the, um, we're able to use some of our other scholarship funds to actually pay people to go and complete their AA and BA uh, so that we have a workforce. For early intervention and home visiting, they have a system of personnel development that includes reflective supervision, um, uh, training in um, uh, very um, specific um, professional development related to engaging with families and supporting families. So it is very robust and rigorous the way that we support home visitors, early intervention providers, childcare, and pre-K teachers in getting good training, good professional development, as well as credentials. Okay, and of course, that's all going to take money. Um, Secretary Griginski, a report by the Legislative Council Service found it may be unlawful to use money from a new distribution from the Permanent School Fund for many of the early childhood services that are currently provided by private entities through contracts. Um, Is that going to hamper the ability of the state to expand early childhood services? You know, I think that we need to take a look at the revenue streams we have. It's very important. Um, We have federal funding. We have state general funds. We have the Early Childhood Trust Fund. And we have um, now the land-grant permanent fund. We have TANF funding. So I think it's looking at the full budget of the Early Childhood Education and Care Department and seeing what funds um, can be used for which purposes. Okay, I'd like to go back to um, Elaine Sanchez from Napper. You explained to me earlier this week that your funding sources are varied, and because you're a not-for-profit organization, it seems like there is never enough money. What kinds of things do you need money for right now? Gosh, you name it, we need it. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll gladly walk down this road with you. But some of the most uh, apparent and large ones really circulate around workforce, um, supporting the workforce and getting the numbers of people in to serve the need that is out there. Uh, As a nonprofit, sometimes our wages are not able to be at a competitive level as in the private sector, especially, I shouldn't say especially, but one of the areas is with our child uh, care center teachers. Another area is with our professional providers, for example, physical therapists, occupational therapists, social workers, those kind of professionals that we uh, work with, and making sure that these uh, folks are supported to continue their credentials and qualifications to make sure that they can do the services. Um, in addition to that, on the workforce front, it also is encouraging people to go to more rural settings and getting out of the the urban settings and allowing people to have uh, 
motivation to go out to some of the more, um, you know, difficult places to reach. And I mean that geographically. Um, so that is really important because it's difficult to motivate people to go drive for an hour and a half, but not be able to pay them beyond that. I would say absolutely the resources and the supports we need to increase the um, ability to give them to the families. We need to uh, help them to navigate services, whether they be local or otherwise. So various types of continuity programs would be very helpful to know what programs are where, what services are being rendered already to this child, and developing somewhat of what we call wraparound services, making sure that the whole is being taken care of. And that can be looked at as the whole of the child, that can be looked at the whole of the family, that can be looked at as the whole of the community. Thank you, Elaine. Um... Gosh, I feel like each one of those topics you just brought up could have uh, taken an entire hour of discussion, um, but we can't do that today. <laughs> uh, Bill, you and I talked a little bit about wraparound services in the past. Can you describe what some of those are that you uh, are advocating for? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that's important about early ed um, and care is that we're not just talking about the child being ready for kindergarten or first grade. We're really talking about healthy development, uh, social and emotional development. Um, and there's there's this blurred line between health and cognitive development in those early years that a child fully develops in all kinds of ways that um, I think in those early years, we're not just focused on the preparing the child uh, for learning in school. We're preparing that child for a healthy life, uh, socially, emotionally, cognitively. And that requires uh, a, a, a holistic view of the child and their development. And I'm just thrilled. I think the secretary talked about it well, that that's really the approach that the state is taking in in all of these early ed programs. Okay, Secretary Gurginski, uh, I know you're going to have to leave us real soon, I believe. Um, but before you do, I want to make sure that we talk a bit more about the money. In almost every economic story I've worked on in the last couple of years, one of the main problems is low wages. And we heard it from Elaine, too. It's a problem nationally in childcare, but New Mexico often seems to be leading the way on solving many of those kinds of problems. So tell us what about wages? What's in your plan? How can Amendment 1 help? Yes, so we've taken um, some bold steps as first state in the nation to set our child care rates based on what it actually costs to provide care. Now, we did that in 21 when we set the base wage in our cost model at 12.10 an hour because that was the highest minimum wage in the state. But immediately we saw the increase, um, people paying $14, $15, $17 for retail, fast food restaurants. And so that's why the governor really implored us to look for a solution to help our child care staff. So we have released the competitive pay for professionals, $3 an hour increase for people working in child care. We want to, in 23, set the rate, uh, use the cost model again to set the child care reimbursement rate with $15 being uh, the base wage floor for anybody working in child care now. That's not the lead teacher, that's not the director, but that's the person coming in um, as a 
a floater or an assistant teacher, because we know that in order to attract um, and retain the talent that we need in early childhood, we have to increase how much we pay them. Also home visitors, also early intervention providers. We are finishing right now a cost study on early intervention, uh, and that'll be released later this year. We'll see, again, what do we need to do to make sure that New Mexico has the best physical therapists, occupational therapists, lead teachers in childcare, awesome pre-K teachers, uh, wonderful home visitors who are supporting families. So compensation is, as you know, one of Governor Lujan Grisham's biggest priorities when it comes to education, cradle to career. So uh, we've taken some bold steps. We want to build on those. We don't want to go back. Uh, We want to keep moving forward so that we have the workforce that New Mexico families and children need. Okay, thank you. Uh, We know that wages have been going up in other sectors recently, and retention is a big problem in childcare, especially. I wonder if you kind of have a target date for us of when those wages, those those minimums, might might increase. Our our plan and what we're putting forward um, in our agency budget request is to have an increase in funding so that we can uh, redo the cost model and increase those rates beginning July 1, 2023. So right now we have the competitive pay for professionals that will go through August of 2023 and we'll be paying those rates. It's also important that we maintain the expanded eligibility. Bill talked about that earlier. You know, we're right now at 400% federal poverty level. A family of four in New Mexico making up to $111,000 is eligible for right now free childcare. We think that's important because then our child care providers are getting that full reimbursement rate from the state for the majority of families they're serving. You know, Kave, child care is out of reach for most families, what it actually costs to deliver high-quality child care. But the benefit is enormous. People are going to work. They're more productive. They're happy. Uh, their child is learning and developing and getting all the screenings that Elaine talked about so that we know they're on track and ready um, to enter kindergarten with all the skills they need uh, to take up that K-12 experience. And so you know, it's just important that we, we think about how we're investing in this system. And so child care, the people who work there every day serving thousands and thousands of New Mexico children really deserve our investment, our respect, and our attention. And just to be clear, that expanded eligibility for state aid for uh, child care is set to expire, I believe, next summer. Is that right? Without any further legislative action? That's correct. Okay, so there's still a chance for that to be uh, extended. Uh, We have to take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Kaveh Movahead. Stay right there. We'll be right back. Lakota tribes commissioned the Crazy Horse Memorial before World War II. The ambitious project has been in the works ever since. Now, for the first time, a Native administrator, who is not the original sculpture's family, is overseeing the foundation working on the monument and affiliated institutions. We'll hear from Whitney Rencounter and others about the future of the Crazy Horse Memorial. Weekday mornings at 11 on KUNM. There's still time to get a tax donation for 2022 by donating your unwanted car or truck to KUNM because you get to deduct in the year you sign the title over. But it's best to call today so you'll know the amount of the sale when you file your taxes. Tow trucks are ready to be dispatched to tow away your unwanted vehicles, running or not. Your vehicle donation also gets you a KUNM membership. Call 888-KUNM-CAR. That's 888-586-6227. 
Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico on KUNM. We are taking your calls on how to use the new funding for public education that's promised by Amendment 1 that passed uh, with a 40% margin last week. Call 505-277-5866 to share your ideas. Now, let's take this opportunity to to pivot the conversation to K-12 public education. 40% of the money from Amendment 1 is allocated to public schools. We have New Mexico Senator Bill Souls on the line from Las Cruces, I believe. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Okay, and just so listeners don't mix you up with our other guest, Bill Jordan, who's here in studio, I'm going to call you Senator Souls. That would be fine. Okay, great. Uh you have a pretty extensive resume when it comes to working in education, though now you're retired but still working in the legislature. Share a little bit about your work experience in education. I've done all kinds of things in education. I've been faculty and staff at New Mexico State University where I taught uh, developmental psychology uh, and was also uh, taught teachers and preparing of teachers. I've been an elementary principal. I've been a middle school principal. I was on the school board in Las Cruces. I've been a faculty member at uh, community colleges. I've been an administrator at community colleges and been with the New Mexico School Board Association. I've had a wide range of different things, and I'm now the chair of the Senate Education Committee. Okay, well, you're probably the right person to pitch this to. We got an email from John Delgado. He says, what I've observed in my kids' school district is lopsided spending for special education. All or almost all of the money is spent on special needs kids, none or almost none on gifted kids. While I believe special needs kids need support, aren't the gifted going to be our next generation of doctors, scientists, engineers, leaders, and such? Isn't it in the best interest of society to help them flourish? What do you think? I don't think it's an either-or kind of a question. Uh, Certainly our special needs kids have very high needs. And in New Mexico, and we're somewhat unique among states because it is not the same in all states, is gifted education falls under special education in New Mexico. Uh, They're classified as a level one special ed. And I was a uh, gifted coordinator in high school before I retired a few years back. I know those students very well. But there are also a lot of the regular ed kids who are going to be our doctors and lawyers and leaders as well. And so it's not one that one gets it or the other doesn't. But those kinds of decisions really are at the local level. And the funding is generated through the state formula as to who gets how much money. And But it doesn't flow and follow the kid directly. It flows into the district budget and then out from there. Okay, we're talking a lot about outcomes and how to use money, but ultimately this is a conversation about all this new money. We talked about legislative roadblocks to the realization of the promise of improving education with the new funding. Where do you see the next fight over Amendment 1, Senator Sills? One of my biggest concerns, and I've seen it happen in the past in the legislature, is as this new money flows in, the public often thinks this comes on top of the education budget that's already there. I'm very concerned that this money is going to be used to supplant what we already put into education funding. Uh, I want to make sure that this is seen as additional money on top of what we typically allocate. But this money doesn't directly indicate it has to be spent that way. And so that's some that I'm going to be watching is that this money really is added to the education budget, doesn't just supplant money that is already being spent on education. Okay. And Bill Jordan from New Mexico Voices for Children, you're in the room nodding uh, along. Would you like to add anything? 
Well, I just want to agree. I think this is uh, an extraordinary turning point for New Mexico, uh, not just for education, but how we approach our budget. The voters sent a clear bipartisan message that their support for the constitutional with their support uh, for the constitutional amendment, but they overwhelmingly supported all of the bond measures. I think what they're saying is we want to invest in our kids and our families and our communities. We, we can't wait any longer. And I think that the appropriators in the legislature should take advantage of not just the uh, constitutional amendment, but the additional revenue that we have this year and go big, go bold. Let's make this a transformative year. Well, you know, earlier you mentioned how this is kind of a now multi-decade fight just to get this onto the ballot. Uh, maybe I'll go to Senator Solza with this. How did the reorienting of the legislature in recent elections help maybe finally get Amendment 1 on the ballot? It was huge. Um, a couple of years ago, there were every year were bills to try and get this on the ballot. And they always died in one committee without a vote in that committee. Uh, committee chairs had incredible power within the legislature, and it was essentially blocked by one or two legislators every single year in spite of polling that showed that it was overwhelmingly supported by the public and by the majority of other legislators. That legislator is no longer in the legislature, and as a result, the bill got a fair hearing, and it moved forward. And it was clear that the public, with over 70% supporting it, believed that investments we make in our children are investments they want to make in the future of New Mexico. So I wonder how you think that clear win with voters could shift opinions among the lawmakers who are still there, who weren't on board with tapping more money from the land-grant permanent fund. Well, I mean, I, I think that was how it got through. I mean, this, because it's in the Constitution, the land-grant permanent fund, it had to go to the voters. And the voters supported what the legislature was now able to get passed. Okay. Uh, Senator Stolz, what opportunities will there be for public input on how the money is spent? The public always is able to, to put in some of the, the input. Their input really is through the legislators in their district. And so please, you know, for people listening, contact your local legislators. Tell them you support this. Tell them that you support investments in our children and from the prior conversation in our very youngest children, but also all the way through the K-12 system. Education is economic development in the state of New Mexico. Education is the future if we're going to move up out of 51st in education, but also move our entire state forward. We have opportunities now because of this money that come once in a generation, maybe, to make a real difference in the future for New Mexico. We've got enough money. We're, we can have nice things in, in the state now. Thank you. Thank you for that comment. We have a caller, Nancy from Albuquerque. Go ahead, Nancy. Good morning. Um, I'm I'm very honored to be here. Um, I'm a UNM professor. Uh, I've recently retired, and we have a project called Tech Love, a teacher education collaborative in language diversity and arts integration. And we've just, we've seen a lot of success when the children are given opportunities to learn through all the school subjects and the arts. But currently throughout the state, and this has been true for the last 20 years, you're welcome to talk to 
the eight faculty that I work with, we've had an, an unusual emphasis on phonics. And phonics is decoding words phonetically, but it does not include high-quality multicultural literature. It doesn't include bringing the child's own lived experiences into the school environment. And so we've had a poverty in New Mexico of meaningful learning. And this is the biggest problem we're having, that if we just switched to some of the practices that have been recommended by the College of Education at UNM, for the last 20 years, we would have the kinds of, of growth in our, in our children that we currently lack, because especially with the children in high-poverty school, they're forcing them to do almost exclusively reading and math. And the reading and math is very low level. They do it on these little computers. It's called iStation and iReady. And it's very low-functioning, and the kids are bored to death and don't want to come to school. This has been a problem for the last 20 years since George Bush put into effect the No Child Left Behind legislation. Obama continued it, and it's continued throughout uh, the years. So I'm just advocating for the money to be used for high-quality, meaningful education and this also addresses the martinez yazi lawsuit decision because it brings the child's lived experiences and language into the classroom okay thank you for calling nancy there was a lot there to unpack i think this is a good time to introduce our final guest of the hour fred nathan from think new mexico on the phone from santa fe think new mexico is a nonpartisan think tank that advocates for those without the voice to advocate for themselves last month think released a new report suggesting 10 reforms to improve the public education system and it's called a roadmap for rethinking public education in new mexico you can find a link to it at kunm.org however i was just sent a message that our website down. So uh, it will be there later when the internet comes back. Uh, good morning, Fred. Uh, do you have a reaction to Nancy's Nancy's comments? I think there's so many things. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, should I unmute? No, no, we're good. Can you hear me? Okay. Um, th- there are many things that, that need to happen in New Mexico, and, and I agree with Senator Souls that um, this is long overdue. And, you know, I I think you need to start, though, with teachers and principals. Um, We need to improve the pay for principals. They're they're dramatically underpaid relative to uh, central office administrators, for example, but they're so important in terms of attracting good teachers. We'd also like to see some of that money used on teacher residencies, and I'm really heartened that Senator Souls and, and others in the legislature have started a pilot project to give teachers more practical experience. In writing that report, we talked to a lot of teachers, and they told us that in the colleges of education, the emphasis is much more on theory, but what really helps them in the classroom is having practical experience. And a lot of states that are are very successful on these education metrics are giving their teachers a year of residency where they watch an expert teacher, uh, how they control a classroom. And teachers that have these residencies stay about twice as long in the profession as those that don't. And we're in the middle of a a national competition. There's a shortage of teachers. And this is something that can can attract um, more teachers to the profession and and improve the quality of teaching. Okay, thank you. Uh, Senator Souls, I think you have something to add there. 
Oh, now we can't hear you. Oh. There you are. There you are. Okay. (laughs) I absolutely agree with what Fred is saying, and the legislature is already doing that. Uh, Where we started with a small pilot this this year, the residency program uh, has expanded statewide to our teacher preparation programs that we have fully funded for everyone that's able to to begin to to do a full year instead of a one semester student teaching a full year residency with half time pay half of what a teacher would make so that they don't have to have an outside job while they're doing that and that was one of the really big barriers um, everything that we have been working on is to try and refill the pipeline with teachers and give them high quality experiences instead of doing alternative licensing programs where we have people alternatively licensed in a classroom that have no pedagogy at all and maybe signed up for a course while they're doing that. That we really are rebuilding our teacher preparation programs on a model that gives them high quality experiences. And that includes within the colleges, teaching them structured literacy, specifics of how to teach reading to children and to answer the uh, caller's question about making sure is you have to teach the specifics of how to decode words along with having the experiences of culture and uh, high quality materials that are engaging for the for the young readers okay thank you uh now fred also mentioned principals i happen to know you've been a principal once or twice can you tell us a little bit more about what the job of the principal is because i'll be honest i i haven't had a lot of interactions with principals and i don't really know incredibly important because they set the culture for the school and if the school is a place that the teachers want to be the principals want to be they make it a welcoming place for the children to be and problems such as absenteeism goes down and they're able to lead the teachers in doing high quality instruction in ways that are engaging for students and others that are involved with the school. Uh, Some of the comments that principals are underpaid, the legislature is working on that. Uh, Principal pay is tied to the highest level of teacher pay with increases for the extra time and energy that they do. The problem is, and similar to the shortage of teachers, there's a shortage of principals. Uh, We don't have a big pool of people, and there's a difficulty of how do you get them additional training and time when they need somebody in the school and in the classroom. And so there's very much those chicken and egg type of things that we need to increase the training and preparation, while at the same time making sure that there are people who understand child development, learning, Uh, high-quality teaching and building up the teachers towards that. Under the Martinez administration of the past, we often had principals being the gatekeeper and the person who was evaluating the teachers in very punitive kinds of ways instead of in positive ways that built their capacity. Okay, I'd like to go back to Fred Nathan from Think New Mexico. We don't have time to dig into all 10 of your suggestions from the report, uh, but there's another one I'd like to bring up that I think uh, Senator Souls might say we're already doing, but I think you have a different take on it. That's extended learning, meaning either lengthening school days or lengthening the school year. Tell me what you suggest, Fred. Yeah, well, so there was a study done by economists at Stanford in the Wharton School and they looked at 21 different ideas for improving student outcomes. By far, the the biggest uh, idea to move the needle was time on task. 
And looking at elementary school education in New Mexico, the instructional time uh, under state statute is 990 hours. Over a 180-day school year, that equates to about five and a half hours of instructional time. But taken out of that, and what counts as instructional time right now, is parent-teacher conferences, professional development, um, when students are not even present. So our students in elementary school are getting less than five and a half hours of instruction every day. We've proposed requiring an additional hour a day to the elementary school calendar, which can be devoted to things like literacy and math, where we're underperforming relative to other states. And I'm heartened because I I think there's going to be a bill in this upcoming session that would increase uh, the instructional time by nearly an hour a day, uh, up to 1140 hours. Uh, We've proposed 1170, but that would be a terrific step forward, and I commend those that are, are pushing that, and I think Senator Souls is leading on that as well. Fred and Senator Souls, are we counting on Amendment 1 to help fund that? Yes. uh, Well, no, we're not counting on it this year because Amendment 1 monies won't be flowing into the the coffers for another year or two before all of the other pieces get there. We have enough money in our state budget now, and uh, Fred Nathan is absolutely correct. The LESC, the Legislative Education Study Committee, over this interim has very much been working on and talking about increasing the instructional hours within the school and increasing the minimums that schools will need to, but also using a very much a carrot for districts of putting substantial additional money for the districts that go beyond those minimums. That's a really important piece. Okay, thank you. I really like giving the last thought to my guests. However, we have a comment from Mario in Albuquerque. He says, education planning should start first with Indian education because they're the most impacted. I'll leave us with that. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. We are at the end of the hour. Thank you to all the guests, uh, Secretary Elizabeth Gorginski, Bill Jordan in the studio, Elaine Sanchez, Senator Bill Souls, and Fred Nathan from Think New Mexico. Think New Mexico. KUNM will keep adding to coverage of early childhood education and public education and new funding from Amendment 1. Please keep following us on Twitter, hashtag Let's Talk NM. On Facebook, search for KUNM Radio or email us at Let's Talk at KUNM.org. Our engineer is Marino Spencer. Jeanette DeDios handled the phones today. Bryce Dix live tweeted for us and Megan Kamrick produced the show. Also, a big thanks to the Thornburg Foundation for its ongoing support of the Your New Mexico Government Project.